A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 64. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 21 Thebes, Part 4. Most travellers moor for a day or two at Karnak, and thence make their excursion to Bab el Mulek. By doing so, they lose one of the most interesting rides in the neighbourhood of Thebes. El and the rider started from Luxor one morning about an hour after daybreak, crossing the river at the usual point, and thence riding northwards along the bank, with the Nile on the one hand and the cornlands on the other. In the course of such rides one discovers the almost incredible fertility of the Thabid. Every inch of arable ground is turned to account. All that grows, grows lustily. The barley ripples in one uninterrupted sweep from Adinit Habu to a point half-way between the Ramesseum and Gurna. Next come plantations of tobacco, cotton, hemp, linseed, maize, and lentils, so closely set so rich in promise that the country looks as if it were laid out in allotment grounds for miles together. Where the rice crop has been gathered, clusters of temporary huts have sprung up in the clearings, for the fellaheen come out from their crowded villages in the sweet of the year, and live in the midst of the crops which they now guard, and which presently they will reap. The walls of these summer huts are mere wattled fences of Indian corn straw, with bundles of the same laid lightly across the top by way of roofing. This pastoral world is everywhere up and doing. Here are men plying the shadoof by the river's brink, women spinning in the sun, children playing, dogs barking, larks soaring and singing overhead. Against the foot of the cliffs yonder, where the vegetation ends and the tombs begin, there flows a calm river edged with palms. A few months ago we should have been deceived by that fairy water. We know now that it is the mirage. Striking off by and by towards the left, we make for a point where the mountains recede and run low, and a wedge-like spit of sandy desert encroaches upon the plain. On the verge of this spit stands a clump of sycamores and palms. A row of old, yellow columns supporting a sculptured architrave gleams through the boughs, a little village nestles close by, and on the desert slope beyond, in the midst of a desolate Arab burial ground, we see a tiny mosque with one small cupola dazzling white in the sunshine. This is Gurna. There is a spring here, and some girls are drawing water from the well near the temple. Our donkeys slake their thirst from the cattle trough, a broken sarcophagus that may once have held the mummy of a king. A creaking sakia is at work yonder, turned by a couple of red cows with mild Hathor-like faces. The old man who drives them sits in the middle of the cogwheel and goes slowly round as if he was being roasted. We now leave behind us the well and the trees and the old Greek-looking temple and turn our faces westward, bound for an opening yonder among cliffs pitted with the mouths of empty tombs. It is plain to see that we are now entering upon what was once a torrent-bed. Rushing down from the hills, the pent-up waters have here spread fan-like over the slope of the desert, strewing the ground with boulders, and ploughing it into hundreds of tortuous channels. 
Up that torrent bed lies our road to-day. The weird rocks stand like sentinels to right and left as one enters the mouth of the valley, and take strange shapes as of obelisks and sphinxes. Some, worn at the base and towering like ruined pyramids above, remind us of tombs on the Appian Way. As the ravine narrows, the limestone walls rise higher. The chalky track glares underfoot. Piles of shivered ships sparkle and scintillate at the foot of the rocks. The cliffs burn at a white heat. The atmosphere palpitates like gaseous vapor. The sun blazes overhead. Not a breath stirs, neither is there a finger's breadth of shade on either side. It is like riding into the mouth of a furnace. Meanwhile one looks in vain for any sign of life. No blade of green has grown here since the world began. No breathing creature makes these rocks its home. All is desolation, such desolation as one dreams of in a world scathed by fire from heaven. When we have gone a long way, always tracking up the bed of the torrent, we came to a place where our donkeys turn off from the main course, and make for what is evidently a forced passage cut clean through a wall of solid limestone. The place was once a mere recess in the cliffs, but on the farther side, masked by a natural barrier of rock, there lay another valley leading to a secluded amphitheatre among the mountains. The first pharaoh who chose his place of burial among those hidden ways must have been he who cut the pass and leveled the road by which we now travel. This cutting is Bab el Molik, the gate of the king, a name which doubtless perpetuates that by which the place was known to the old Egyptians. Once through the gate, a grand mountain rises into view. Egypt is the land of strange mountains, and here is one which reproduces on a giant scale every feature of the pyramid of Onephus at Saqqara. It is square, it rises stage above stage in ranges of columnar cliffs, with slopes of debris between, and it terminates in a blunt four-sided peak nearly eighteen hundred feet above the level of the plain. Keeping this mountain always before us, we now follow the windings of the second valley, which is even more narrow, parched, and glaring than the first. Perhaps the intense heat makes the road appear longer than it really is, but it seems to us like several miles. At length the uniformity of the way is broken. Two small ravines branch off, one to the right, one to the left, and in both, at the foot of the rocks, there are here and there to be seen square openings, like cellar doors, half sunk below the surface, and seeming to shoot downwards into the bowels of the earth. In another moment or so, our road ends suddenly in a wild, tumbled waste, like an exhausted quarry, shut in all round by impending precipices, at the base of which more rock-cut portals peep out at different points. From the moment when it first came into sight, I had made certain that in that pyramidal mountain we should find the tombs of the kings. So certain that I can scarcely believe our guide when he assures us that these cellars are the places we have come to see, and that the mountain contains not a single tomb. We alight, however, climb a steep slope, and find ourselves on the threshold of number 17. Belzoni tomb, says our guide, and Belzoni's tomb, as we know, is the tomb of Seti I. 
I am almost ashamed to remember now that we took our luncheon in the shade of that solemn vestibule, and rested and made merry before going down to the great gloomy sepulchre, whose staircases and corridors plunged away into the darkness below, as if they led straight to the land of Amenti. The tombs in the valley of Bab el Molik are as unlike the tombs in the cliffs opposite Luxor as if the Theban kings and the Theban nobles were of different races and creeds. Those sacred scribes and dignitaries, with their wives and families, and their numerous friends and dependents, were a joyous set. They loved the things of this life, and would fain have carried their pursuits and pleasures with them into the land beyond the grave. So they decorated the walls of their tombs with pictures of the way in which their lives were spent, and hoped perhaps that the mummy, dreaming away its long term of solitary waiting, might take comfort in those shadowy reminiscences. The kings, on the contrary, covered every foot of their last palaces with scenes from the life to come. The wanderings of the soul after its separation from the body, the terrors and dangers that beset it during its journey through Hades, the demons it must fight, the accusers to whom it must answer, the transformations it must undergo, afforded subjects for endless illustration. Of the fishing and fowling and feasting and junketing that we saw the other day in those terraces behind the Ramesseum, we discover no trace in the tombs of Bab el-Malik. In place of singing and lute-playing, we find here prayers and invocations. For the pleasant Nile-boat, and the water-parties, and the chase of the gazelle and the ibex, we now have the bark of Charon, and the basin of purgatorial fire, and the strife with the infernal deities. The contrast is sharp and strange. It is as if an Epicurean aristocracy had been ruled by a line of Puritan kings. The tombs of the subjects are anacreonics. The tombs of their sovereigns are as penitential psalms. To go down into one of these great sepulchres is to descend one's self into the lower world, and to tread the path of the shades. Crossing the threshold we look up, half expecting to read those terrible words in which all who enter are warned to leave hope behind them. The passage slopes before our feet the daylight fades behind us. At the end of the passage comes a flight of steps, and from the bottom of that flight of steps we see another corridor slanting down into the depths of utter darkness. The walls on both sides are covered with close-cut columns of hieroglyphic text, interspersed with ominous shapes, half deity, half demon. Huge serpents writhe beside us along the walls. Guardian spirits of threatening aspect advance, brandishing swords of flame. A strange heaven opens overhead, a heaven where the stars travel in boats across the seas of space, and the sun, escorted by the hours, the months, and the signs of the zodiac, issues from the east, sets in the west, and traverses the hemisphere of everlasting night. We go on, and the last gleam of daylight vanishes in the distance. Another flight of steps leads now to a succession of passages and halls, some smaller, some larger, some vaulted, some supported on pillars. Here yawns a great pit, half full of debris. Yonder opens a suite of unfinished chambers abandoned by the workmen. The farther we go, the more weird become our surroundings. The walls swarm with ugly and evil things. Serpents and bats and crocodiles, some with human heads and legs, some vomiting fire, some armed with spears and darts, pursue and torture the wicked. These unfortunates have their hearts torn out, are boiled in cauldrons, are suspended head downwards over seas of flame, 
are speared, decapitated, and driven in headless gangs to scenes of further torment. Beheld by the dim and shifting light of a few candles, these painted horrors assume an aspect of ghastly reality. They start into life as we pass, then drop behind us into darkness. That darkness alone is awful. The atmosphere is suffocating. The place is ghostly and peopled with nightmares. Elsewhere we come upon scenes less painful. The sun emerges from the lower hemisphere. The justified dead sow and reap in the Elysian fields, gather celestial fruits, and bathe in the waters of truth. The royal mummy reposes in its shrine. Funerary statues of the king are worshipped with incense and offerings of meat and libations of wine. Finally the king arrives, purified and justified, at the last stage of his spiritual journey. He is welcomed by the gods, ushered into the presence of Osiris, and received into the abode of the blessed. Coming out for a moment into blinding daylight, we drink a long draught of pure air, cross a few yards of uneven ground, arrive at the mouth of another excavation, and plunge again into the underground darkness. A third and fourth time we repeat this strange experience. It is like a feverish sleep troubled by gruesome dreams and broken by momentary wakings. These tombs in a general way are very much alike. Some are longer than others, some loftier. In some the descent is gradual, in others it is steep and sudden. Certain leading features are common to all. The great serpent, the scarab, the bat, the crocodile are always conspicuous on the walls. The judgment scene and the well-known typical picture of the four races of mankind are continually reproduced. Some tombs, however, vary both in plan and decoration. That of Ramesses III, though not nearly so beautiful as the tomb of Seti I, is perhaps the most curious of all. The paintings here are, for the most part, designed on an unsculptured surface coated with white stucco. The drawing is often indifferent, and the coloring is uniformly coarse and gaudy. Yellows abound, and crude reds and blues remind us of the colored picture books of our childhood. It is difficult to understand, indeed, how the builder of Medinet Habu, with the best Egyptian art of the day at his command, should have been content with such wall paintings as these. Still, Ramesses III seems to have had a grand idea of going in state to the next world with his retainers around him. In a series of small antechambers opening off from the first corridor, we see depicted all the household furniture, all the plate, the weapons, the wealth and treasure of the king. Upon the walls of one the cooks and bakers are seen preparing the royal dinner. In the others are depicted magnificent thrones, gilded galleys with party-colored sails, gold and silver vases, rich store of arms and armor, piles of precious woods, of panther-skins, of fruits and birds, and curious baskets, and all such articles of personal luxury as a palace-building pharaoh might delight in. Here also are the two famous harpers, cruelly defaced, but still sweeping the strings with the old powerful touch, that erewhile soothed the king in his hours of melancholy. These two spirited figures, which are undoubtedly portraits, almost redeem the poverty of the rest of the paintings. In many tombs the empty sarcophagus yet occupies its ancient place. We saw one in number two, Ramesses the fourth, and another in number nine, Ramesses the sixth. 
the first a grand monolith of dark granite, overturned and but little injured, the second shattered by early treasure-seekers. Most of the tombs at Bab el-Muluk were open in Ptolemaic times. Being then, as now, among the stock sights and wonders of Thebes, they were visited by crowds of early travellers, who have, as usual, left their neatly scribbled graffiti on the walls. When and by whom the sepulchres were originally violated is, of course, unknown. Some, doubtless, were sacked by the Persians, others were plundered by the Egyptians themselves, long enough before Cambyses. Not even in the days of the Ramesses, though a special service of guards was told off for duty in the great valley, were the kings safe in their tombs. During the reign of Ramesses the Ninth, whose tomb is here, and known as Number Six, there seems to have been an organized band, not only of robbers, but of receivers, who lived by depredations of the kind. A contemporary papyrus tells how, in one instance, the royal mummies were found lying in the dust, their gold and silver ornaments, and the treasures of their tombs, all stolen. In another instance, a king and his queen were carried away bodily, to be unrolled at rifled at leisure. This curious information is all recorded in the form of a report, drawn up by the commandant of western Thebes, who, with certain other officers and magistrates, officially inspected the tombs of the royal ancestors during the reign of Ramesses the Ninth. No royal tomb has been found absolutely intact in the valley of Bab el-Malik. Even that of Seti I had been secretly entered ages before Belzoni discovered it. He found in it statues of wood and porcelain, and the mummy of a bull, but nothing of value save the sarcophagus which was empty. There can be no doubt that the priesthood were largely implicated in these contemporary sacrileges. Of thirty-nine persons accused by name in the papyrus just quoted, seven are priests and eight are sacred scribes. End of section 64